Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. Everyone loves a story. This statement is as true today as it likely was 5,000 years ago. We as a species are drawn to stories like bees to honey. Why is that exactly? Here to discuss it with me is Anna Ong, founder of What's Your Story, a Singapore-based outfit that uses storytelling to shape individual and corporate purpose. But first, a quick word about our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now here's my conversation with Anna. Anna Ong, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Asia. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. We're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects today, uh, story. And I thought before we get into the subject matter, for starters, what's your story? So I am a former banker turned storyteller. Well, some of my friends would say I had a midlife crisis back in 2016 when I decided to quit my job and leave a career that I've known pretty much all my life to go to South America to learn Spanish and dance. And through that self-discovery journey, I call it my eat, pray, love moment, though I've never read the book or seen the movie, I discovered the world of comedy. And I came back to Singapore kind of reinvented. So like people would come up to me and go like, yeah, you kind of inspired me like on how you reinvented yourself. Like you were, you left as a banker and then you came back. Now you're like doing all these artsy stuff and, and yet you're still bringing it home into the business, like the world of stories. Well, what about comedy? What, what, what was the comedy moment for you? Oh, so for me, it it, it started because uh, I went to see a stand-up comedy show and I thought I was funnier than a, a, one of the female stand-up comedians. And I thought, well, if this is the bar for comedy, then I might as well just do comedy after all. I'm prettier and I'm funnier. <laughs> <laughs> Confidence was not an issue for you. Yeah. So I, I, as a joke, I signed up for comedy school and I moved to New York. Uh, but I found out that I was very lazy and I did not really care to do stand-up because it's a little bit lonelier. Uh, but so I signed up for improv without knowing what it was, uh, because I always figured improv, you just have to show up. And it was through improv that I discovered the world of monologues and storytelling. And it was love. Improv my, was my first love, but storytelling, that art form, that comedic art form became my true love. Did you have that love of story going back into your childhood or was it a, a new discovery for you? Oh, so I've always loved stories. So even as a kid, like uh, when I get my textbooks, my favorite class is like reading because it has all these short stories. And I would always go to the bookstore to buy uh, like new series of like young adult novels as a kid that my dad actually stopped me and says like he can't buy me any more books because he thinks it's an addiction. So then I started writing my own stories to entertain myself when I couldn't find any more books that entertained me. Uh, so I used to write fiction, but now I tell stories from my life. Nice. Nice. Tell, tell me, well, why are stories important? I think stories are important because uh, through, as humans, we're all wired for stories. We've heard about it. Like we've, we did it visually when through the caveman paintings in those Lacroix caves back in France uh, we, and, or the hieroglyphics. 
uh, and then we also, before the written word, there was the oral tradition. We pass on stories from one another. That's how we learn. We know when it's dangerous, where it's dangerous because of the stories told to us over time. And now, nowadays, I think it's much more relevant in these modern days because we are experiencing through the pandemic, a global sense of loneliness and through stories. When we hear other people's stories, while our experiences are slightly different, we share common themes. And suddenly when we hear them, when we listen to other people's stories, we feel less alone because stories connect us. Yeah. Yeah. I find it fascinating that in many indigenous cultures, it's the shaman who also doubled as the chief storyteller uh, who holds the community or held the community together. In our modern culture, it's the social media influencers. And uh, I don't uh, see them as being in the same class. What do you think? Uh, no, I don't, because I think the social media influencers, at least for the ones I've seen most of the time, they, they're trying to sell something. It's not about sharing uh, an idea or like uh, doing it like to bring people together. Um, so, but there are some who are, have used social media in order to bring um, people together. Like, uh, but I don't think they're as successful because getting real engagement takes work on both sides. It's interesting how you've cited the crisis as a moment for people to rediscover the power of story. Um, and, and you've used this word sharing in many ways, because telling a story is really sharing an idea or a belief system or a common set of goals. Uh, it, it could be something which is, is a bonding influence. I, I, I oftentimes think of uh, st stories historically as a means of generating social cohesiveness. Uh, are, we, are we less cohesive today because the great storytellers are either underrepresented or underappreciated? Uh, I think we are more te technologically connected, but emotionally disconnected. So modern communication technology has allowed us to be able to reach anybody we want in the world almost instantaneously. But half the time, because of also that noise, a lot of voices are not heard. And so when you're not, when nobody's hearing you, you feel disconnected. It's also like when people like post like all these stories on Instagram, not everybody watches it because we're overwhelmed with too much information. So then you get a lot of disengagement. Right, right. It feels like people have isolated themselves with technology to some degree. I mean, uh, you know, it used to be sitting around the fire or, you know, telling stories was the primary means of entertainment. Um, even the fireside chats, chats under uh, FDR uh, during the Great Depression were a ways of him telling stories, communicating ideas, allowing people to feel a sense of participation in the changes that were occurring. Now, you know, people are honed in on video games or YouTube videos. Videos. Um, are you aware, and maybe let's talk a little about the role of technology. Has technology undermined or enhanced our ability to craft and share great stories, or are there technologies out there that actually uh, um, work and support the storytelling tradition? So I think there's, I mean, there's like a big debate. Like I think technology can be used to help enhance storytelling. Like I have never attended so many storytelling events over Zoom. And I did find like when we started the pandemic last year, uh, I was I, I live alone and it was through the through Zoom in Zoom rooms, I met other people who were doing stories, like telling stories. And till now I've never met them in person, but I meet with them every week. They're like my tribe, like they're like my storytelling community. 
Uh, so it makes the world feel a little smaller. And through Zoom, because uh, we can record it, uh, we can record people's feedback when we work on crafting our stories. So there is some benefit on having technology, which you can't really do when you're doing it as a class. However, um, I find that technology also, because we sometimes use it as a replacement for human interaction, uh, so half the time you see everybody's getting neck issues because we're always just looking down on our phones and you see, you, you can't have a dinner without watching people, seeing people at the restaurants. Like most of the time their phone is at the table with them or, or people are dining alone. And so we feel like we're connected. Oh, I'm creating an Insta story, but that's not really, you're just taking a selfie or a picture of yourself having fun, but there's no real event that's happening other than like showing off, which makes more people I don't, feel more isolated. I think when we see people's fabulous life on social media, we feel isolated. But when we hear people tell actual stories where there's the ups and downs, that's when we really connect. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think that people are craving something. But what is that? It, it feels to me like we're all in need of a new myth. Uh, you know, what I mean by this is that our times and circumstances have changed, and so our stories need to change and adapt to reflect to some degree uh, and explain the new challenges of our time. I mean, what's a, what's a good example? Uh, um, the film director, George Lucas, you know, he created Star Wars at precisely the time when the world was starting to experience the threat and promise of advanced technology. Uh, you remember that moment when Obi-Wan Kenobi says, use the force, Luke. That was the moment we uh, he made the call not to rely on technology and to use his own thoughts and intuition instead. Um, there was a message there. Um, what's the message in these times? And 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 do you think that there's a similar opportunity for stories to be uh, applied in order to help cast and create a new movement or a new feeling or a new cause uh, that can uh, maybe reunite us after this uh, terrible global pandemic? In some ways, I think here, what, what we're learning is how to share, or we're still learning how to share, share information, because this pandemic is affecting us globally. And right now, um, right now, governments, most governments are doing it in isolation, which is kind of like representative of how our situations are. We like to deal with things on our own. But until everybody comes together and realize that, you know, this thing is not going to go away unless we already but 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 because uh, this virus also kills us if we're all together in one in one space. That's that's a problem, right? We can't be physically together, so it's more. We but we still need to share information. I mean, I was following up, reading up on it. Like uh, I think President Biden was saying about like we should. He wants to like kind of like release like the patents for the, the on how to do, make the vaccine, so we can so that other manufacturers, like say in India, can make it cheaper and like vaccinate more people in the world, but then there are also pharma companies like we spent so much money and this, we're not giving it away for free. Um, so so uh, I, I think the lesson we have to learn is at some point we have to figure out what's, how can we make this a win? Uh, how can we all bot, figure it out together? Because I think collectively as a whole, um, we're greater than the sum of our parts. Yeah. How can storytelling uh, help bridge that gap? Where does story come into that? And how, how, how might we apply it at a, at a national or global level in order for people to resonate and understand the way through? I think we need to make it humanizing. We, uh, I think most of the story, we, we say it's the virus, 
uh, I find like most of the article, it says it's as a separate entity, um, but we need to humanize. But when we give statistics, it's a statistic. We don't really care about 10, uh, whatever, 10,000 people, 100,000 people. That's, that's a number. You feature one person and normally people start caring because then suddenly we can picture it. We can relate to this person. This person is somebody's younger sister, somebody's, you know, somebody's mother, somebody's uh, best friend. We can picture that. We can picture the situation that they're in. Um, that's also like a, a technique that's used by most um, charitable foundations when they're trying to raise money uh, is that yeah. by humanizing it. So you don't talk about 100,000 people die of white river blindness. You talk about her name is Maya. She's three years old. And every day she would go down the river with her mother to fetch, um, to fetch water. And occasionally she would play there. And since she was playing there, she, she developed blindness. Mia's five and now she can't see. However, this is a disease that can be prevented if you would help us fund the research for it. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. That's a great example. In fact, I recall during the mid-1990s, the Ethiopian crisis, uh, where um, they couldn't figure out how to mobilize people to care. Uh, the funds weren't coming in, and they did just that. They found a child, um, you know, as manipulative perhaps as that feels, but they did humanize it, and it totally reversed uh, the, the, the level of giving. Um, people poured in. They thought even if it could save just that one child, um, it brought it home, didn't it? And, and I guess that's... Yeah. That's the problem with stories, isn't it, Anna? Because stories can be used both to inspire but also to control. So there's the manipulative yeah. side. And we've seen this with yeah. some of the, our, our great leaders through history. Uh, you know, Mao Zedong, Hitler, and Donald Trump. I'll put them together. Why not? Um, and, and they've all been able to kind of somehow tell their stories to mobilize people against what most would consider to be, you know, um, you know ulterior motives or, or, or evil intent. How do you feel? Um, I mean, is, is it just, I guess it's available to everybody. And it's just up, uh, up to us as a society to discern and discriminate as to what stories stories are uplifting and which ones should be vested in versus those that should be downplayed and, and, um, and avoided, yeah? I think it depends on our own set of ethics and values because that is actually reflected also in our stories. Stories like technology are tools of power. And it's, but unlike technology, not all of us have access to it, but stories, we all have access to it. And it's up to us in terms of our crafting our stories and our purpose and our intention when we tell the stories and, uh, on what we want, what outcome we want from it. And it's true. Some people use stories to manipulate but, or influence a decision. Uh, but some people use stories to inspire, to entertain, to connect, or use stories to inform, which is what the shamans did before, like just informing us what our history was. Uh, they, that, that's what they use stories. They use stories to warn us or to teach us. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, companies use stories. They call it marketing. Uh, some do it better than others, yeah. I suspect, right? Some spend tens of millions yeah. to tell their stories to win the hearts and minds of customers. Uh, outward facing, there's no shortage of effort. Inward facing, though, it sometimes feels like uh, companies don't really care what their own people think. Uh, are, are you aware, aware of efforts by companies to use storytelling to inspire, motivate, engage employees? I, is it even important, in your opinion? Uh, I think it is very important. I, I can't really say in terms of larger organizations, but uh, in terms of like the leaders that I work with, because um, I can't really say what's happening in all organizations, because some people view storytelling as frou-frou, 
it's a, it's a nice to have, but not a must have, but some also see it essential, especially in the startup world. So I can tell you about one of my experiences in the startup world when I was in Washington, D.C. Um, the CEO hired me to teach his, uh, to help his management team find their signature story for us to, why, why, why they do what they do and how it connects with the company and their department, like their sense of purpose. Uh, I'll be, of course, this is also a social enterprise. So most of the time you hire a person because they believe in the vision of the company or the vision of the CEO. And so each, and I find that because that they are able to articulate it themselves, they start to see their own value. Because when you ask yourself, why do I do what I do? And why does it matter in this department? You start to see your own contribution because you get to articulate it. And then you get to see like, um, the patterns you have in terms of like what you've learned through your previous experiences that you bring to the table. So through this, just through this exercise alone, you find your own value and you find a new connection to the company. And this, um, this, uh, this team, this startup, they use these stories that I work with them for when they meet with venture capitalists, capitalists because it's like their stories are about two to three minutes. So that makes them more memorable. And when I ask VC firms, like, so what do you look at when you guys invest in startups? He goes, we look at the people. And if they have a cohesive story, because once you hear everybody's story, it's a beautiful team company story. And they've used these stories as well to recruit talent, to join their team. So then they know what the purpose of this department is. So, so what's the line of demarcation between a pitch and a story? In other words, you hear people pitching ideas, but that's something that they've all agreed to in concert. Is a storytelling process the way you pitch, or is it a different way of conveying ideas which are important for your listener? Um, so th it depends on what your definition of a story is. Because some people, when I was researching in terms of what storytelling is, that th they would define stories as a structured way of communicating. Because as humans, we like structure, we like organization. And the story has a structure. So you can say a pitch normally comes in this structure. This is the problem. Here's the solution. And this is the, we are the solution. And this is why it benefits you. Uh, the problem normally is how you can tell the story, right? This is like where we go like, you know, once upon a time, there was this young gentleman who, you know, could not be able to get, um, you know, who was hungry at midnight and could not get any access to any food. Then one day there was this app that, you know, like somebody really needed to do something about it. And then someone goes like, oh, you know, we created this app, you know, hungry at midnight, whatever. And, you know, we'll deliver within five minutes. Um, so you can use a story for that. Yeah, bringing it back to the individual, somehow creating a touch point versus this is our general idea, This is this, and, and here's the general concept, and this is the way the technology works. How can somebody out there, a fictional or not, benefit from what we're about to present you with? Is that the idea? Yes, I find that when pitches are normally, they humanize it. They, they, you, can ins you can play a movie instead of like using a visual medium. With your words, you can play a movie in each uh, in your listener's mind 
You know, I, I notice in, in corporations right now, many of them are struggling to keep their employees inspired and engaged. Um, a lot of companies and a lot of individuals are starting to ask, you know, maybe work isn't everything I thought it was. Maybe my um, priorities are all mixed up. Maybe I should be thinking more about being closer to family or tending to my health or doing other things besides working. It's a struggle for companies. And companies are trying to figure out how could I connect with employees in order to get a different result in a different way. So to be fair to them, right, they really are genuinely trying to understand how to address some of these concerns and rising and continuing concerns for employees. Um, in, in the world of corporate purpose, where I do a lot of work, you know, there's this idea that a company can, from the top down, declare this is our purpose, this is where we're engaged, these are the stakeholders we do and what we do with our stakeholders. But unless and until you get your employees from the bottom up to connect with that idea and to convey what they care about, about and then find those touch points, it simply doesn't work. How do you think story, and, and tell me how, you know, because one thing we haven't talked here about is, is we tell stories because we're looking, we're meaning makers. We generate meaning. We're looking for meaning, whether it's in the company, whether it's at home, whether it's in society, that's what we do. And that's what human, as a species, for reasons we don't fully understand, we are geared and designed to do that. How can you see stories working in an environment in order to bring up an, a wellspring of, of employee interest and engagement in a company. Have you thought about that or worked in that space? Uh, any, any, anything you could share with us on that? So I would say I, I have worked with startups in terms of this, like building a culture of storytelling. And I do understand that it is a growing concern for larger organizations, especially in like their CSR, like they're trying to build a culture of storytelling, getting people to share more. I would say that it comes two things, right? People follow leaders. And the reason why people we have leaders is because people follow them. It starts from the top. Messaging starts from the top, but they have to make sure that everybody below them who's leading the team also has to embody that message and go along with and build up on it. If there is someone who who breaks the chain, then, then that basically sets an example to others that I don't need to follow this direction. Um, when and I think, and I think also in terms of the stories they tell, more often than more often than not, people just share stories of their successes. They don't share the stories that make them human, like the stories that, like the downfall. Uh, and we we like this. We we and I think, or just even as leaders, just admitting that they made a mistake and not like I made a mistake, but I fixed it. Those are the stories that they talk about. I fell, but I managed to get out of it. But what about just like, yeah, I blew it. And you know what? I screwed up. I'm sorry. But nobody really talks about that. But those are the relatable moments because most of the time we screw up and we can't fix it. Yeah, I completely hear you on this. And that's the human response. But then there's something called investors and shareholders and Wall Street. And, and yeah. they, they're very unforgiving. I would even call them, you know, a non-human at some point, right? So they, they don't really care. Yet, 
you, you've raised a really important point. Um, increasingly, the stakeholders who do care, these could be partners, suppliers, communities, the environment, you know, employees, these other stakeholder groups very much care about the human side of things. That's why they get up in the morning and show up for work and do what they do. Yes, for the paycheck, no doubt. But increasingly, it needs to be something which has and is embedded in, in meaning, whatever that meaning might be. You know, Brene Brown is doing all of this work on vulnerability and, and leadership and vulnerability and demonstrating, you know, through research that in fact, a, a, it's not that just you completely expose yourself, but you demonstrate the human side and you show that I can make mistakes too. And then you use that as a lever to then help other people come forward with their challenges and concerns. And as a result, all of a sudden you can change and shift the culture in an organization. A lot of leaders are terrified of making that step because they're afraid if I go too far, I'm going to expose myself and risk my job. If I don't go far enough, it's going to feel inauthentic and therefore people will question me. So what's the, the, what's the happy meeting point? It seems to me, Anna, that storytelling is one of the prime ways we can get there because it's a convention and a device that keeps things relatively safe and structured to your earlier point. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I think storytelling allows you to contain your vulnerability in a in a box that you get to decide. Like uh, that's actually even how I started uh, really getting deep into the storytelling is because I wanted to know, be able to be vulnerable, but then also in a safe way. Like I know like after the, my, the end of my five minute story, okay, that's it, you know, I'm back to me. But then for that, those five minutes, I'm vulnerable. Um, but also like you touched on a point where you said about like, you know, this is a challenge that leaders face, but like suppliers and other stakeholders, they want the human element because in order for us to build trust with people, we need to have vulnerability and competence. I already know you're competent because you went to the school, you have all these experiences, you've lived these companies and all that. But I need to know that you're human. And that vulnerability, like realizing that you've made the mistake and yet you learn something from your mistake or whatever, um, makes me that, that I can trust you because like, you know, we, we, you're human, you, 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 you can fall too. What a great point. What an excellent point. Yeah. Take us back to before COVID, when you first returned to Singapore, you set up uh, storytelling slams. Share with our listeners what that was all about and why that was an important first step perhaps here in Singapore. So when, uh, so when I came back to Singapore to set up my business, I missed the world of storytelling where I would go to storytelling competitions uh, and, and just share, share a story uh, because there is no, nothing more magical than the feeling of being up on stage, having two, 300 pairs of ears, just listening to, hanging to your every word. And for those moments, those five minutes that you're sharing story, that you're all connected. I enjoy listening to stories and I enjoy telling stories. Like I, I would go to these slams sometimes just by myself, not knowing anyone, but I never felt alone because it's such a warm and welcoming community. And I miss that. And when I came here in Singapore, I kept complaining to my friends, like, oh, there, you know, I, I, there's no scene for storytelling. They've all closed down. And I would go to comedy open mic nights with a bunch of stand-up comedians because they say, storytellers are welcome. But my stories fall flat because the audience is different. They're expecting jokes. And I don't have a joke every 30 seconds. My, and normally, I'm, I'm not even trying to be funny. So... One of my friends suggested, well, why don't you just start your own show? So, and I figured, why not? I, so, so we did. We started uh, What's Your Story Slam. It was supposed to be a one-off. And 
but then I couldn't have find enough people to volunteer to tell stories. So I had to ask most of my friends to come and uh, tell stories. So it, looking back, I was very surprised by the amount of trust that they believed in me for doing this. And because I just thought, don't worry, I will walk you through the entire process. I'll coach you. I'll help you craft a story. Uh, and then, and, and so, yeah, so they all agreed. They just trusted me in it. I realized though here in Singapore that I had no idea how to do events or how to raise publicity for events. I think it's still a learning process for me. I innocently believe if you create an event page on Facebook, people will come. Turns out they won't. You got to do a little more work. Yeah. So turns out they, they won't. I think it takes like three weeks before the show. I was in New York uh, at a seminar uh, when I found out that we only sold 30 I think 20 tickets. Uh, and then I had a theater for a hundred. And then I have like eight storytellers and I didn't want them to speak to an empty room. Although they wouldn't mind speaking to an empty room because it's less scary for them. But for me, there is nothing more depressing than not being seen or heard. So kind of had to put myself out there. Like I, I kind of, it, it, it was for me the most vulnerable moment uh, because I have to tell people who knew me as a banker that I'm doing something in entertainment. And 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 I saw people who were buying tickets and they're going, oh my God, these are like those mean girls who were judging me when I was at the bank. I, they, came, they come in my head. I was like, they're here to see me fall. And, and it was a success. And you did several other story slams after that. Is that right? Yes. Because during intermission, people were telling me how much they loved it, like the vulnerability and, um, and how they felt connected with the theme, like how they resonated with everyone. And it's beautiful. Like you can see like during intermission, People will just randomly just step up and talk to one of the storytellers, saying, "Oh my God, I love your story." It's it's and and everyone's just open to talk to one another, even though they don't know each other. And more more than not, like here in Singapore, at least pre-pandemic, you see someone talking to you at the lift, you jump and you're like, "Who are you, weirdo? Why are you talking to me?" But there, everyone's happy to meet people, even though they don't know anyone. It, it's the environment. It's the whole setting. I mean, this is why in-person story slams on stage live are so powerful because it's in the moment. You aren't. They aren't premeditated. They're not entirely. They're they're, they're planned, but but not entirely scripted, is my understanding. Uh, but then you they're have not. that. You, there's that element of spontaneity. Like there may be a moment where a tear or a laugh or some reaction from the audience that spurs the, the story on or, or gives it a new flavor. So there's 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 something that happens in in those environments that simply are irreplaceable. And I do hope we get back to those live moments. You know, we're sitting here over Zoom having this interview. Um, it's a great conversation, but you know, it would be wonderful to be sitting in person with you. There's something that changes face-to-face -face with people, whether in large crowds or whether, you know, you're just one-on-one. -on -one. And that's uh, that's something that I don't think uh, our human condition could ever adjust to, is an entirely two-dimensional flat-screen world. What do you think? Yes. Uh, well, I think so in some ways, Zoom can replicate it, but it's muted. It's very muted uh, in terms of connecting with people when we do it virtually. Um, there is something that we bring when we, uh, when we meet in person. We have an energy exchange. You know when like, sometimes you interact with people, you feel so invigorated, you get so many ideas because there's something about just the pure chemistry of both your energies that brings sparks. That's why they say we have sparks, right? And I think like when you tell a story in a room full of people, everybody's just being happy to be there. Uh, it's There is that buzz that's happening in the air that fuels you, your adrenaline when you're telling a story. Um, you 
can simulate it in Zoom, but like, you know, but then it's a lot more work and a lot more thought. It's not like just opening up a Zoom room. You have to set it up. Like, you know, what happens when everybody comes in? Do you have music? Do you set people up to breakout rooms and have them mingle with each other? You know, like, you know, or some people find it shocking. Some people liked it because that they get, because I find when I do virtual events, if I have people mingle before that, and when I do the show, I get much more engagement because I know somebody else is watching this. I don't feel so alone. Yeah, it's great. Anna, personally, I'm glad you left banking because uh, we have plenty of bankers in the world. We don't have enough storytellers. Uh, and I, I really... Best yeah, I bet. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> clients are one thing. I guess if they can make bankers great storytellers, maybe everybody wins. But um, I, I thank you for the work you do. Uh, keep it going. Uh, when we're back on stage, I'll, I'll look forward to, to joining and participating. Um, uh, it's wonderful to see the work you do. Um, thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. It's like time just flew by. That was Anna Ong, founder of What's Your Story? Our conversation left me wondering if we haven't somehow overlooked in the midst of our crisis one of the single most powerful tools at our disposal. Storytelling is to communications what the wheel is to transportation. If crafted well, a story grips its audience, conveys essential information, conjures clear images, and leaves listeners more connected. Unlike watching a Hollywood film or reading a great novel, storytelling is best performed in a one-to-many fashion. I'm starting to think about story in new ways. For instance, can the art of storytelling be revived not merely as a trendy idea or marketing device, but as a foundational technology to re-engage families, communities, organizations, and nations? If you think about it, we've given over entirely to linear and data-driven messaging. I'm not saying that's bad, but it's limiting. In corporations, careers rise and fall on one's ability to manage hundreds, if not thousands, of emails, texts, messages on any given day. That's fine for purely instructive purposes, but it's also dehumanizing, both by virtue of the technology platforms used to deliver the message and in terms of how they are crafted, mostly jagged phrases laced with emojis. It's like fast food for the eyes, impersonal and repeatable. Of course, the situation is only exacerbated by COVID-related work-from-home orders. The human touch points are in rapid decline. Speaking anthropologically, I don't think we're ready for this. Companies are trying their very best to ease the psychological pain by introducing online meditation sessions or group yoga therapy. Unfortunately, the results are mixed at best. Few organizations, however, have thought about introducing story as a team-building tool for all the reasons Anna and I just discussed. It encourages connection, fosters trust, allows for vulnerability, and ultimately helps build community and maybe even common purpose. There's an entertainment quality to storytelling as well, and nothing wrong with that. Years ago, I did some work in the field of depth psychology and the dream state. I was told that the human psyche uses dreams on two levels. At one level, it cleans out the cognitive junk that accrues during the waking hours. Dreams, I was told, help process conflict, anxieties, and other matters of the mind. On another level, there are the big dreams, the ones that tap into something greater than one's own set of individual thoughts and concerns. Carl Jung spoke of these as archetypal dreams, the ones generated from a common platform of symbols that humans across time and place can all relate to. These, claimed Jung, were the unifying forces of what he referred to as the collective unconscious. 
the unified imagination. By extension, I'd like to think of the stories we tell each other in a similar way. There are those small stories that simply allow us to process our anxieties and aspirations and to feel heard. Then there are the big stories, the ones that require a collective crafting. These kinds of narratives have the potential to serve as a force for good. They are the stories that guide us through precarious times and bear witness to our better angels. We've relied on the big stories in times past. Ancient Greece found expression in the Iliad and the Odyssey. For the Mayans, it was the Popol Vuh, and for the Hindus, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Indeed, the stories that formed the backbone of our greatest religions were all expressions of a common yearning or set of beliefs. Maybe I'm just romanticizing. Perhaps these tales of yore are consigned to a specific time in human history that predates mass media and the World Wide Web. Maybe we aren't in need of the big stories anymore, but I don't think so. I think a new mythology for our time could be just the antidote necessary to counter small thinking and a world of unfulfilled human aspirations. So this week, do yourself a favor. Choose a phone call over an email. Connect with someone, not because you need something, but because you have something to share. Give TikTok a rest and read a novel instead. And when you go to bed at night, dream the big dreams. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share it with friends and colleagues. Every podcast is a new experiment. Each week we'll work to introduce a new topic or trend that shows how corporate purpose, sustainability, and 21st century thinking are stacking up to guides Asia future. As always, we thank you for listening. Thank you.